Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos, and today on The Breakdown, he is the son of Mexican immigrants. He grew up poor in the San Fernando Valley and rose to become the first Latino and the youngest person ever elected president of the L.A. City Council. And today, Alex Padilla is the top election official in the nation's largest state. Secretary of State Padilla, welcome to The Breakdown. Uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me, and I hope everybody's uh, staying safe and healthy during these challenging times. We, we say it a lot, but we can't say it too much. Hopefully. No, we can't. We're all washing uh, our hands. Do what we need to do to stay healthy. Exactly. Well, we want to begin by asking you about what happened in the middle of the country last week in Wisconsin, the primary there. Uh, as you know, and most people heard, uh, the Democratic governor wanted to postpone the primary because of coronavirus. The Republicans in the legislature refused. They went to court. They won. The election happened. And for many people, it seemed that voters had to choose between voting and protecting their health. And I want to just ask you, what are the lessons from that primary? Yeah. Well, I think that's the right question, uh, because what we saw happen in Wisconsin should be a warning to everybody across the country let it not be a preview of what could happen in november uh right this uh, uh false choice of having to choose do i exercise my right to vote or do i do what i need to do to protect my health and that of my family that's a false choice that was completely avoidable uh, but it requires some advanced planning to make sure that we uh, plan for november and deliver elections that are accessible that are secure and that are safe for everybody, for voters and poll workers and elections staff alike. Uh, so, uh, you know, we can dissect as to how Wisconsin ended up in the position that they did. But, you know, to your point, let's learn from it. Let's take the lessons away. And as I've been analyzing it and speaking with my colleagues from around the country, frankly, uh, it turns out that a lot of the policies that California has championed to increase access to the ballot make even more sense during a public health pandemic. You know, policies like online voter registration, policies like vote by mail, no excuse vote by mail specifically, and policies like, you know, affording people in-person opportunities to vote. But let's space it out. Let's have a lot of in-person early voting for folks who can take advantage of that because more people who vote early, whether it's by mail or safely in person, means fewer people on election day, shorter lines, smaller crowds, and that's healthier for everybody. I mean, Secretary, I feel like 
Unfortunately, this has become such a partisan issue, right, that, you know, you have the president warning that if vote by mail is sort of accessible to everyone across the nation, that it could end up being a route for Democrats. Um, we've been talking about that sort of ironic, given historically in California, conservative and rural voters were the ones who took advantage of vote by mail. Can you talk about if you're having conversations with Republican secretaries of state or registrars that uh, that, that leads you to believe at all that this is either you know, an across the board partisan issue or that it's really just being seized by some of our sort of federal leaders? Uh, look, you're, you're, you're right. This should not be a partisan issue. Uh, we all learned in high school government class that our democracy works best when as many eligible people can register to vote and cast their ballot, right, free of any unnecessary obstacles or barriers. Uh, but unfortunately, there are some, you know, starting with Trump himself. Uh, it's not ironic, it's frankly hypocritical for him to try to undermine confidence in vote by mail when he himself is a vote by mail voter. You know, he, he voted recently in the Florida presidential primary by mail. He's requested his uh, ballot by mail for the uh, the other Florida primary, and I'm sure he'll vote by mail in November. Uh, uh, what he is doing and others uh, who support his agenda is, frankly, voter suppression, plain and simple. When you uh, either uh, instill policies in place to make it harder for people who are eligible to register or vote, that is voter suppression. Uh, or even undermining the confidence people deserve to have in our electoral process uh, is voter suppression. Because there is going to be some people who choose to not vote because they think, well, it's all undermined anyway. I can't really uh, vote with confidence anyway, so why should I bother? And that's frankly a disservice uh, to American democracy uh, and the voters of America. But there is hope. There is hope. Uh, there's a number of uh, not just Democratic secretaries, but a lot of Republican secretaries of state, frankly, that support vote by mail and have been encouraging vote by mail uh, and Republican governors for that matter, too. You know, there's a the, the Maryland primary was postponed because of the pandemic uh, and the Republican governor of Maryland has called for uh, a, a all vote by mail election. Uh, even in uh, New Hampshire, a uh, Republican governor has lifted you know, previous restrictions on vote by mail to allow more people to exercise that safe, healthy option for voting. Uh, and I've had personal conversations with colleagues in Texas and Ohio and Florida uh, about this as well. So I do think there's a lot of bipartisan support for more vote by mail, not all vote by mail only, but certainly expanding vote by mail as a core element for uh, accessible, secure, and safe elections in November. Well, and Secretary, of course, we've been doing that in California. We've had uh, no excuse vote by mail for a long time now, and people are increasingly doing that. Uh, and yet we saw in L.A. a lot of problems on Super Tuesday. Uh, they had a new voting system, which did not work very well. Uh, there were some very long lines. They went to this vote center model uh, for part of the county, uh, and they really uh, underestimated, I guess, how many people were going to come out to the the vote centers. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, did, did you, as Secretary of State, who, you know, thinks about these things, did you underestimate what the problems might be, given all the moving parts and, and a very high turnout election in Los Angeles? Right. Uh, look, let's, let's keep it in context. Are there some issues to work in Los Angeles County? Absolutely. Right. I, I remember the images from election night. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the context of California, we have 58 counties. And in 57 of the 58 counties, things ran pretty smoothly. 
there are 15 counties that have adopted what's known as the Voter's Choice Act, this model where you send everybody a ballot in the mail and you give them options for how to return the ballot by mail, secure drop boxes, or at a vote center if they want to vote in person or drop off their ballot in person. Of the, of the 15 counties that adopted the Voter's Choice Act, 14 did the complete Voter's Choice Act, which included sending everybody a ballot in the mail you know, a month before the election. The one county that did not, Los Angeles County. Uh, and so in, in some ways, yes, it was a perfect storm where we set up these vote centers. There was still a good amount of people receiving their vote by mail ballot in Los Angeles County. I want to say it was about uh, 63% or so. Uh, and, and on election day and during the course of in-person early voting, uh, I'd say you know more than 90% of vote centers were working just fine. But there was a handful where, yes, the, the lines, the crowds were underestimated. Uh, some of the equipment wasn't performing uh, as, as it should have been. And so we ended up with that perfect storm on election night. So immediately after the primary election, I called on Los Angeles County to take that final step and send every voter in the county a ballot in the mail automatically, just as the rest of the Voters' Choice Act counties did, right? It worked smoothly in the other 14. L.A. County could and should do the same. And so we've been working with the Registrar of Voters, the County Board of Supervisors there to achieve that, and I think we will. Um, and, and frankly, that uh, gap represents half of the remaining gap statewide. Uh, statewide in California, 75% uh, of voters received a vote-by-mail ballot. Most folks will have returned them by mail. Some people like to drop it off in person. You know, if you make a mistake on the ballot, need a replacement, well, then you go to a polling place or a vote center. So the challenge in California for this November is how do we go from that 75% uh, marker in the primary to as close to 100% as we can in November? Half of that so gap is Los Angeles County. So I think we're well underway. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I often like to say, you know, L.A. is 40 percent of everything in California <laughs> or more sometimes. But I mean, so broadly speaking, I mean, under your watch, um, we've seen a massive expansion of the voter rolls, a real push for expanded vote by mail and these voting center options. Uh, it is mid-April. I mean, how ready are we for November right now? So here, here's the deal. Uh, the pandemic has changed everything. Uh, as it pertains to uh, public health and safety, we're all staying at home, wearing masks when we go out, you know, not shaking hands anymore, not even elbow bumping anymore because we want to keep <laughs> our six feet of distance. It's changed public education, right? Everybody's homeschooling now. God bless my wife. We have three boys at home, different grades, different you know, curriculum and instruction. I'm just the occasional tutor, but she's on the front lines on education at home right now. And it's going to change how we administer elections. Look, voting by mail uh, made sense before from a ballot access standpoint, makes even more sense during this public health pandemic. And so we're going to continue to grow that. But from a fundamental voting rights standpoint, I think people who need or prefer an in-person option deserve it. And so we're going to have to work really hard with counties to ensure we maintain as much in-person voting as we can, not just on election day, but prior to election day. But it's going to be a real challenge. I'll give you two examples. Number one, 
where are the polling places and vote centers going to be? You know, a polling place at a retirement home doesn't make sense anymore. So we need to find a new location mm -hmm. to replace the old location while making sure that the, you know, the, the seniors who lived in a retirement home are disenfranchised in the process. Do you support uh, right. and Secretary? And it's not just, you know, maybe a small community center or library anymore where you can put, you know, 30 voting booths side by side because now we've got to space them out. So instead of a 500 square foot space or a thousand square foot space, you're talking about a 2000 square foot space, you know, things along those lines. And to the extent yeah. that we can secure locations, we obviously got to staff them. Historically, seniors and retirees made up a good chunk of the election day workforce, all those volunteer poll workers. And so they're the most recommended to stay at home. How do we recruit a new generation of poll worker? between now and November. So we're going to be building on these calls to action statewide, a new way to serve your, your state, your country, and our democracy uh, uh, if you're willing to work. And we're going to put in place all the safety measures, right? Masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, et cetera, uh, to uh, make sure that folks have access to the ballot in a safe, healthy way. All right. We're Maybe gonna we take could a use one of Sorry, I was going to say, maybe we could use some of those empty beaches and parks or something for voting. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Secretary of State Alex Padilla. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is California's top election official, Secretary of State Alex Padilla. Secretary of State, uh, you did not start off on a path toward politics so much. Um, your parents both came from Mexico. Uh, you grew up in a working class family in Pacoima, and you ended up going to MIT in Massachusetts, and you studied rocket science. Um, <laughs> How did how did you end up on that path? <laughs> so that that's one way of putting it. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, you know when when uh, we say that I feel like uh, I'm living the American dream come true. It's uh, 
uh, it couldn't be any more genuine. You know, proud of my parents and the example that they set uh, coming from Mexico, striving for a better life and life opportunity. Uh, they're actually from different parts of Mexico. My father's from the state of Jalisco. My mother was from the state of uh, Chihuahua. They, they met in Los Angeles, fell in love and applied for green cards in that order. Uh, and I thank the uh, U.S. government every day for having said yes, because uh, if those applications would have been denied, my life story would be much, much different. Uh, but my parents uh, normalized, uh, got married and settled into the San Fernando Valley to, to raise a family. So uh, I have an older sister who has gone from being a teacher's assistant to a teacher to principal. She's now an administrator in the Los Angeles Unified School District. I have a younger brother who works for, uh, he's chief of staff to the president of the Los Angeles City Council, a position I held several years ago. And uh, I'm the middle child, which probably explains a lot. Um, <laughs> what, what does and, that explain uh, in your mind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> happen to serve, ask a psychologist. I don't know. <laughs> uh, happen to serve as, a, you know, one of the constitutional officers for the most populous state in the nation. So indeed, the American dream is alive and well. And about uh, that rocket science yeah, thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, so well, like, when I was growing up, here, here's the deal. When I was growing up, my, my, my life dream was to play first base for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I know KQED is a Bay Area station. A lot of <laughs> it's okay. I hear them already. But we're all one state I, mean? I love baseball. Uh, but I was smart enough to know that the odds were long to become a professional athlete. So I needed a backup plan. My favorite subject in school was math. Uh, and somehow I did well in science. So predictably, the teachers, the counselors said, you ought to be an engineer. You ought to be an engineer. And when it came time to applying for college, in addition to the UCs and the CSUs, uh, they put it in my head that I should apply to this engineering school back east called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, felt it was a long shot to apply, uh, but I did. And between the time I applied and the acceptance letter arrived, I realized that if I got in, I had to go. Now, wow. realize this is before the days of www.anything. So it required making a phone call, sending a letter, requesting an application, and getting brochures in the mail. Uh, but I realized that an acceptance letter was not just a chance of a lifetime for me, but frankly, the fulfillment of my parents' dreams and struggles and sacrifice because they worked hard. My dad was a short order cook for 40 years before he retired. My mom used to clean houses for those same 40 years before she retired. All they wanted was for my brother and my sister and I to get a chance at a good education. And so uh, blessed that I got it. Uh, thought engineering was that safe, reliable career path for me so that I can provide for my family and take care of my parents. And uh, when I came home in 1994 from college, a few things that were happening that turned my life upside down left a very stable path to one of the most unpredictable paths you can imagine, that being government and politics specifically. Uh, All right, I want to get to that in a second. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. But before you, you you move on to that, I just want to know, because, you know, you'd mentioned your family, you know, your parents had these very blue collar jobs. I read about you helping collect recycling with your dad at one point that you guys yeah. spent a lot of time at libraries and pools in the summers to, you know, as basically childcare. Um, at the same time, you're not the only one from that neighborhood who rose into politics. Um, you served with Assemblymember Felipe Fuentes and a handful of other folks who came up. I just want to ask ask you about like the 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 culture was there an expectation beyond just your immediate family to do well um or did you ever feel like the negative peer pressure like how did you kind of balance that yeah no look it was a lot of both um 
you know, at times I tell people uh, uh, or ask people, have you ever seen the movie La Bamba? Right, the story of Richie Valens. Mm -hmm. Well, Richie Valens <laughs> is from Pacoima. Richie Valens went to San Fernando High School and from that same community, uh, but at a very different time. Have you ever seen the movie Straight Out of Compton? Uh, right. Yes. <laughs> that was the time period yeah. that I was in high school, uh, not in South Los Angeles in Pacoima, but by the way, folks, you know, where uh, Rodney King had his fateful experience with the Los Angeles Police Department mm -hmm. was in Pacoima, not in South mm -hmm. Los Angeles. So it was a hybrid of strong uh, work ethic and family values demonstrated by my parents and, and most of the families in the community, right? Pacoima is this blue collar community, hardworking folks, a lot of immigrants just trying to make it and, and do well. And so we did have this uh, example, not so much pressure, but an example of you know, as tough as we may have it individually, we have a moral obligation uh, to help others to the extent that we can. I was raised Catholic and my mom you know, had probably the strongest faith of anybody in our household and in the community. And there was never an issue of whether we can help a neighbor in need. We always did what we could. So I, I always internalized that. Again, no, no, uh, 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 no surprise that my brother, my sister, and I are all in some form of public service. Yeah. Um, yeah where, there right. the where there are the temptations and dangers out there, whether it's gang violence or anything else, uh, absolutely. And so some, maybe some of the, uh, the survivalist instincts and in, in the battle to, uh, you know, make sure that we got through, uh, is part of the resiliency that we've built, uh, to be scrappy in the political arena. Uh, cause you're yeah, right. I'm not the I only bet. one who is from Pacoima. I graduated from San Fernando. That's in public service. Now, uh, the, the first specific opportunity uh, for me was volunteering on a campaign for then, uh, assembly candidate Tony Cardenas, who had left. And you were like 20, what, 22 or His father was from Jalisco. Uh, he was in real estate at the time, running for state assembly. And I went from volunteer to a volunteer organizer to campaign manager within a couple of months in a very long shot campaign. He won, served in the legislature, served in the city council, and now he's been in Congress for several terms. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the representatives today of our community, whether it's two members of the city council in Los Angeles, Nuri Martinez, Monica Rodriguez, also San Fernando High School graduates, our assembly member, Luz Rivas, another San Fernando and MIT graduate. You know, we've made it a point to uh, stay connected and heaven forbid people, you know, work together from the same community to try to uplift that community. That's the way it's supposed to be. All right. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Uh, you're listening to Political Breakdown, and we're talking today with a man who oversees California elections, Secretary of State Alex Padilla. And I want to ask you, uh, you were, I think, about 21 years old when Prop 187 was on the ballot, an anti-immigrant ballot measure perceived by many. Its backers say it wasn't really that. It was against illegal immigration. Nonetheless, how did that affect your interest in politics? Because that's right around the time you were graduating from college. Right. No, and that's uh, look, Prop 187 uh, changed my life trajectory uh, dramatically. Uh, fresh home from college, having earned that uh, mechanical engineering degree after four winters in Massachusetts. You know, I thought uh, this was not a, just, the, you know, the, the dream come true for me, but the dream come true for my parents that I spoke about earlier. Uh, and the environment I came home to in California was this, right? It was a depressed economy. You know, still struggling, especially in Southern California, to recover from the Northridge earthquake, post-Cold War, Defense Department cutbacks, the aerospace industry was tanking, and my job at Hughes Aircraft was highly questionable since I had zero seniority there. 
uh, and I was looking at what else is there for me uh, career-wise. At the same time, this Metro Proposition 187 was on the November uh, 1994 ballot. Uh, and the rhetoric around that campaign, the scapegoating of immigrants, uh, the campaign wasn't too uh, you know, specific about you know, documented, undocumented, et cetera. They were just coming after immigrants. That was clearly the tone set by Pete Wilson, who was up for re-election at the time, and the California Republican Party. And it just shocked the heck out of me. How it, are they blaming the Dow economy uh, the, the tanking of the aerospace industry on people like my parents mm. who have done nothing but work hard for decades, pay taxes for decades, abide by the law for decades. And if they're trying to blame people like my parents and families like mine, you know, multiply that by the millions and millions of similar families across California, that was just fundamentally wrong. And as cynical as I was about politics and government up until that point, I got the, the, the voice of my high school government teacher in my ear <laughs> that, yes, we live in a democracy and we have the right to vote, but, but our voice is only heard if we exercise that right. And, you know, while we all have the right to vote, we also have the right to organize because going back to that math, you know, if I register and vote, that's one voice in the process. But if I can organize my community and move a hundred or a thousand people to register and vote, then that's political strength. And so uh, I realized that I needed to engage politically finally uh, if we wanted to not be scapegoated anymore, not wanted to be uh, targeted anymore. And so uh, that's what did it. Yeah. And I mean, you are not unique in that as well. I mean, I think we hear about that a lot from folks who came up during that era in L.A., um, especially Latinos, obviously. But I think a, a lot of people sort of had that experience. I want to ask you, because it, it, you had sort of after that a pretty meteoric rise um, by age 28. You had been elected to city council. And within two years, you were the president of the L.A. City Council. I think you broke a couple of barriers in that. Um can you talk about one thing that happened not long after, which was 9-11, and you were actually acting mayor because Mayor Hahn at the time got stuck in D.C. Reading about that, that you had to kind of step into this role at a time of uncertainty, you know, made me think a lot about what we're going through right now. What did you learn there? And, and I don't know, what are you bringing to this crisis out of that experience so at so young of an age? Well, I appreciate that question. I mean, first of all, 9-11 is a day that I'll never forget. And I'll uh, uh, talk about that experience and some of the lessons I learned. Uh, but, you know, with that uh, at the beginning of my career uh, and when I was in the state legislature during the Great Recession, you know, an economic collapse for the nation, another sort of national crisis that uh, I, I played a part in from a policymaker standpoint. And now as Secretary of State dealing with this, not just national, but global health pandemic, uh, there's you know governing and leadership in times of crisis that uh, uh, you kind of lean on uh, that apply today. Now, going back to 9-11, you know, woke up uh, that morning uh, to the news of the, the first tower and then the Pentagon and then the second tower. Uh, and it took all of about two seconds for me to remember that uh, Mayor Hahn was in Washington at the time. And by virtue of being president of the council, I was acting mayor. And what so, was the first uh, thought that went through your mind? You were like, oh, my God, I can't believe you know, like, was it. Because it's an opportunity as well, right? I mean, there were a lot of people that probably wish they'd been acting mayor that day. Well, it's uh, you know, not, not uh, a circumstance you wish upon anybody. 
because of the fear, obviously the casualties in, in the New York region. Um, but, um, you know, the, the briefings were still fresh, you know, from the emergency operations board and the police chief about, uh, you know, the protocols uh, that need to go into motion. And so uh, between talking to my staff and other city officials, did my best to get dressed quickly and get downtown as quickly as I could, uh, you know, try to monitor the situation, gather intelligence, and in multiple uh, public briefing opportunities, took the opportunity to share the information in both English and Spanish, right? If we're uh, trying to keep the public informed uh, and uh, sort of comfort Angelenos because there were no credible threats to Los Angeles, uh, how do we tell people it's okay, we're going to be fine, and by the way, tomorrow, let's go back to normal, let's go back to work. Uh, and, and so two lessons that came from that one, the importance of data. And you're hearing this daily from Newsom at noon, looking at all the data points when it comes to coronavirus cases, fatalities, you know, protective equipment, et cetera. Uh, I remember asking our school's liaison, you know, if what school attendance on day two or day three after 9-11, because if it's very, very low, people aren't hearing our message about go back to normal. Same thing with you know, ridership on public transportation and, and things of that nature. So it was a little instinctual, but I'm glad I asked those questions because it helped a lot of decision-making near term. Uh, but I'll tell you, over the course of the weeks uh, after 9-11, beginning to receive letters and postcards, even a couple of phone calls into the office, in response to my bilingual uh, press conferences, you know, go back to Mexico, you know, since when do we speak Spanish? Mm -hmm. This is English only, this is America, all those sorts of things. Even in Los Angeles in the year 2001, uh, we were dealing with uh, uh, dynamics like that. Xenophobia, so, yeah. As Secretary, far as you come as a country and so a We are really short on time, it's really short on time, but I wanna just ask you before we let you go, uh, you talked about your beloved LA Dodgers, there's no baseball. <laughs> what are you doing uh, you know, in, you know, in, in the absence of sports? And you know, when's the last time you played baseball anyway? Quickly, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just quickly, well, uh, feeding, that's uh, scratching that itch two ways. Playing with my boys in the backyard, uh, with ball baseball, so we try to keep the neighbor's yard empty, uh, and watching uh, replays of the 1981 <laughs> and 1988 <laughs> World Series uh, on Fox Sports. All right. Well, Secretary of State Alex Padilla, thank you so much. Really appreciate your joining us on Political Breakdown. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Good. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarotti, and our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I am at M. Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time, everybody. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 